Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana, and I'm joined by Kervin. <laughs> Hi, guys. Yeah. As always, we'll be discussing all those big geopolitical events of the week. But first, it has been quite a whirlwind for us personally, <laughs> and I guess professionally. I mean, I guess professionally for you. From <laughs> making new friends in New York and then talking to old friends on a podcast. So I don't know about you, but I'm I'm still exhausted. I feel like we haven't gotten a chance to breathe. No, no, we have not. Not at all. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm surprised we're even recording this week, honestly. Uh, but look at us. We got everything together. We did. And we're doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that I'm going to sleep for about two weeks. <laughs> um, but I do I do want to say it was worth it. You know, ev- each experience, I know it was exhausting and we were really out of our comfort zone, I would say. Yes, that's exactly. Both, both counts. Both counts. Uh, I, I would like to say thank you to Cornell University and to Victor you know, for inviting yeah, for or- us. For organizing and inviting Kervin to speak. That was really cool. Really cool. Uh, I want to say thanks to Ricky from Rickonomics for coming out and hanging out with us. Yes. Yeah, that was so much fun. Yeah, he is a trip. I really liked him. He's fun, <laughs> yes. he's fun to hang out with for sure. It's part of the family now, so get ready for that. Yeah, sorry, Ricky. Yeah. Uh, also to Josh and Jacob at Screen Echo, thank you for hosting us. Um, I I want to. You're always asking the questions, Tiana. So I want to ask you the question. You know, what did you think about doing that podcast? Because this was your first foray into being a guest on a different podcast. Well, taking that into account, that's probably why I sound like a piece of wood because I was nervous. <laughs> I feel like I didn't, I don't know, I was nervous. Even though it was them and I knew it w- they would make it me comfortable, like I still was very nervous and I don't feel like I fully was myself. I think I was way more reserved than what. I would have been had it been you and me releasing a <laughs> podcast about um, the born identity. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should we should get into that. So that was, but it was just the first one. It was just you know it's the it was the first time. So obviously that's always a little rough. I mean, if you go back and listen to our first episodes of this podcast, woo, don't we, do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we have no personalities at all. <laughs> We are working with the internet to get that deleted forever. Because um, <laughs> we're really, really boring. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I get that. Super nervous first yeah. time doing it. You and... weren't. You've been doing. You've been doing this nonstop. But it was ner- yeah. <laughs> nerve wracking for me. You know, I felt more like I should let the boys have a talk. Like you guys hang out because you've known each other for so long, you know. Definitely, but I do appreciate you coming on because I I do think you think you sounded like a, a block of wood or whatever you said. But yeah, I thought you were very engaging and uh, gave some really quality um, mom mom insight mom <laughs> mom sites mom sites. Anyways, anyways, it was fun though. It did turn out to be fun. It was a yes. very enjoyable experience on both counts. I enjoyed visiting the Cornell campus, the Cornell Tech campus in New York City. So beautiful. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. So beautiful. And then I enjoyed, you know, doing my first little guest spot on a podcast, on our friend's podcast. That was fun. Yeah. And I think uh, Jacob is still sweating oh, back in Louisiana, trying to bleep out all of the uh, profanities. Hey, I only said one word one time and it wasn't even one of the really bad ones. You so. were good. It was Josh who was a regular on that, on that podcast. <laughs> you know, it's, Old habits, okay? Yeah. You know? They die young. Okay, we've been Wait, talking a what? lot about ourselves. Die young? Oh my I God. <laughs> you better watch your mouth, buddy. Let's get Old. to it because Kervin's talking <laughs> nonsense. Yes. What's on your radar, Kervin? Let's bring you back to, to focus on what we're supposed to be talking about. Well, still nonsense, probably. Um, obviously, Russia, Ukraine. Talk about that. Um, I do want to get into... Uh, Europe's disjointed China policy, as we've so talked about. So they don't about, agree. Right. Nobody uh, agrees. So we've talked <laughs> about France. Um, then, and we broke this news on Screen Echo podcast. So that was really fun to do that right at the beginning. I mean, it's not going to be news by the time the podcast comes out. But right. yes, you did. We break got to it. break it to them. Um, and, and that was how the two uh, Chinese nationals who were arrested in New York City as we left to come back to D.C., they were arrested <laughs> for those Chinese police stations in New York. Uh, there was big, uh, there's a big conflict in Sudan going on right now, and we we're going to talk about that attempt between two generals to um, take over the government of Sudan, of Sudan. Then we'll get into the U.N. Security Council, which was discussing North Korea this week. And finally, um, we're going to talk about, uh, I, so this is all focused on like the BRICS information where a lot of countries are trying to, uh, to come over to BRICS and use that as a currency instead of the dollar. Uh, and I want to talk about Brazil's messaging because they're a part of BRICS and their messaging on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how that coincides with China's messaging. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. Okay, so what is the big news coming out of the war in Ukraine? I mean, it's still, it's for the last couple of weeks, it's still been very quiet. Uh, most of the reporting has confirmed that Russian forces continue to advance in Bakhmut. Um, there's some interesting reporting that makes it seem as if Putin's actually very worried about that spring counteroffensive that you, Ukraine has been planning. Um, that's going to be a very interesting event because... All the reporting on it is uh, focused on Ukraine going into Crimea as part of the counteroffensive. But if you remember in September, there was a whole lot of talk about Ukraine planning a counteroffensive in one area. And then they sort of surprised everybody to include the Russian military by focusing on another area for the counteroffensive. Well, do you think they're still going to do the same thing here? I mean, it's interesting. Um, I don't want to discount that idea. But uh, so, you know, my initial thought was, no, they're just going to 
go through it, but the, the, that Crimea counteroffensive came out in the leaked intelligence documents. So now the public has full knowledge that that's indeed what's being planned uh, in Ukraine. So um, I'm not going to say that they're not going to change their mind in the near future, but I just don't know right now. Well, I know there's a lot of misinformation coming out of Russia, of course, and the state-controlled Russian media is not going to call out Putin or his inner circle for this war effort. But can you tell us anything about how the common Russian feels about the ongoing war? I mean, they were initially told this would be a brief special operation, and now we are well over a year into the conflict. This has to be wearing on people. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is certainly wearing on people. Um, and that's on both sides of the argument, actually. Uh, there's definitely this contingent of Russians that are fed up with the war. They didn't want it to start and they want it to end now. Um, but there's also, I would say, a majority of people who are fed up with how Russia has operated in this war. How so? So they think that Putin should be more aggressive in attacking Ukrainian positions. Uh, they also think that Putin calling it a special military operation was a bad move because that could open up Russian service members to criminal trials. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so if it's a <laughs> war, it's one thing. If it's a special operation. Well, a war kind of opens them up to special you know, yeah. criminal trials, too. <laughs> war crimes and yeah. things of that nature. Yeah, so I think either way, they somebody's gonna pay at some somebody point. Somebody <laughs> is, is gonna pay, and there's a there's one particular group. Uh, they're called the Angry Patriots Club, and they're advocating for a revolution in Russia if if the Kremlin actually freezes the war. You know, if they stop fighting in the war, or if they pursue peace negotiations with Ukraine and the West. Um, I think this is a very important development. Uh, because a lot of like our conversations about people's thoughts on the war effort center around anti-war protesters, possible Ukrainian, uh, pro-Ukrainian Russians, things like that. But right. here we have a contingency of Russian activists who are pro-war and they don't want peace in Ukraine. You know, they want the mission to be focused on Russian victory. And there's no victory if Russia has to concede you know, anything to Ukraine. I mean... That is an interesting angle, but of course, it would be naive to think that there weren't groups of people that felt yeah. that way, you know? So yeah. something that we definitely should focus on so we can understand all the views coming out of Russia. Definitely. Thank you for that brief update. Now let's get into the talk on China, who has been making a lot of news recently. I know we are going to get into the big news about the aftermath of the planned Chinese police station in New York. But first, let's talk about Europe's views on China, which are all over the place. Yeah. Are you seeing a consensus? I don't even know I'm asking this question. <laughs> As you said in the rundown, it's clearly disjointed. So I don't even know why I my brain was like, let's ask this question. Are you seeing a consensus? No, there I answered it for you. You answered. You answered your question, which is what this is for. I like it when you answer your own questions mid well, mid we conversation. Well, we don't need you here anymore. This is my podcast that, now. <laughs> that is the future of this podcast. Oh no, it is not. Don't you dare put that out into the universe. <laughs> well, Try again. <laughs> yeah. So you know, like we we just discussed two seconds ago, uh, it's definitely disjointed. It's unclear. Um, we see that. 
by French President Emmanuel Macron's recent state visit to China, um, his comments that he wants to boost trade relations with China, protect France's business interests in Beijing. Um, because of this, France's Eastern European allies are now questioning Europe's roles, role and interests in the Indo-Pacific. So those Eastern European countries argue that Europe must significantly reduce its economic and industrial dependency on China. Uh, the same countries say this is crucial if Europe wants to gain leverage and deter Beijing from invading Taiwan. So what is France's angle here? Well, clearly they're upset with the AUKUS deal, that Australian-UK-US yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so French President Macron continues to reiterate that just because two countries are allies, it doesn't mean they have to agree on every issue. But you think they are getting into a dangerous alliance with China, right? Yeah, and I, I look, I'm not a policymaker. We know. I also don't get any money from China. That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> but that's, I bring up the money from China because that's the real cause of this back and forth from France. Uh, and it's not just France. We're seeing it all across the globe. Um, if you if you remember during the, the panels at Cornell, there was this interesting comment by one of the speakers. Talked about how much damage inflation is doing to companies across the world. Uh, tons of layoffs, hiring freezes. Uh, the, and the way the U.S. has been dealing with inflation is clearly seen as a negative globally. Uh -huh. So now we have countries like Mexico and France. They want to improve their economies just like any country would. And they see China as a conduit to do so. Okay, it's not on the rundown, but we can get into the Mexico angle. They want to join BRICS, right? And they want to go away from the dollar. Is this just because of inflation or is there a little bit more to that? Well, I will say to start, you know, inflation and the U.S.'s uh, current plan to fix inflation has Mexico very worried. Um, <clears throat> couple that with recent talk of the U.S. military action against cartels in Mexico that we talked about a few weeks ago. And then now you have a country that feels very threatened by its neighbor to the north. So joining BRICS could be a positive for Mexico economically, but it's going to cause some concerns for the U.S. and that could damage Mexico. And what would be the concerns coming from the U.S.? Well, uh, having economic and power rivals like Russia and China with close economic and political ties with Mexico is going to influence how the U.S. deals with Mexico in the future. Um, it could provide those rival nations with easier access to the U.S. market, not to uh, not to mention the open border that we have to the south of us. Um, Mexico already has strong trade relationships with China and Russia, and it is also expanding its ties with other BRICS nations. Uh, that positive diplomatic and economic relationship between Mexico and Russia has actually helped Russia establish a strong presence in Latin America. Now... China is using Russia's positive relations within Latin America to promote, to promote its own interests, leading up to an invasion of Taiwan, which I will say is within the next five years. Well, thank you for that little breakdown or thing. We'll continue to track this event to see how it plays out. Um, let's talk about Chinese influence that didn't work out as planned. Yeah. <laughs> Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This week, two people were arrested in connection to those Chinese police stations that were being planned in New York. What is the latest there? All right, so let's uh, let's start by explaining what happened this week. So the two Chinese nationals arrested by U.S. prosecutors in New York for operating a secret police station in China in Manhattan's Chinatown neighborhood. Um, both men face charges of conspiring to act as agents for China and for obstruction of justice. Now, it appears that the outpost was closed in autumn of 2020 when these reports were coming out. Um, 2020 or 2022? 2022. Thank you for that correction. I'm just saying numbers now. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right. That was autumn of 2022. Um, that's uh, I was about like, we're the... going way back in time. Right. <laughs> and we were, that's when we started talking about these things. And okay. that was because the FBI, if, oh my Ooh. goodness, the FBI <laughs> opened an investigation on these two individuals. Now, we always want to give two sides of the story. So, China still denies operating the police stations. They called them service centers for uh, Chinese nationals overseas. Service centers that punish you for for things. (laughs) Can you give us any details on the Chinese nationals arrested? Yeah, so um, according to prosecutors... The, one of the sus- suspects, which is Liu Jianwang, was closely connected to Chinese law enforcement and was enlisted to help China with what the FBI called um, repressive activities beginning in 2015. Well, can you give us more details on these repressive activities that China is accused of participating in? Yeah, so uh, mostly these activities... Uh, are China's ability to monitor and harass Chinese nationals living abroad who criticize the Chinese government. Uh, The individual in question allegedly participated in efforts to push a purported Chinese fugitive to return to China in 2018. Uh, He was also enlisted to locate a pro-democracy activist within China. Now, both men uh, arrested were actually questioned by authorities in October of 2022, um, so the FBI then conducted a search of the sus- that suspected station. Their phones were seized as part of the search, and they did admit they had deleted communication with an official from China's Ministry of Public Security. Sketchy actions across the board, huh? Yeah. Well, while the investigation is ongoing, we should move on to the east of Africa and yes. talk about the major story on the continent. This week, there was a lot of fighting in Sudan. What can you tell us about the conflict there? Yeah, the conflict centers around a power struggle between two generals in Sudan, uh, Mohamed Hamdan Daglo and Abdel Fattah al-Barhan. And what do you know about those two generals? Well, not a lot before this event, but um, this is what I've learned as the conflict has been progressing. So uh, the first general, Daglo, is the leader of the paramilitary uh, rapid support forces. They've been 
accused of committing atrocities during the conflict in Darfur. Uh, the other general, Burhan, uh, has ties to Egypt. Uh, now Egypt shares a border and the Nile River with Sudan. Uh, that general is seen as a very close ally of Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who also came to power in a military coup within Egypt quite a few years ago, about a decade ago. Uh, in 2019, both those uh, Sudanese generals were part of a transitional government established after months of protest. Those protests forced out longtime President Omar al-Bashir to resign. They forced him to resign. Uh, then, in October of 2021, Burhan staged a coup, removed the civilian prime minister from power, and since then, both uh, Daglo and Burhan have been at odds with each other. So the the current struggle for power is really between those two generals. And what are the implications of this coup on a global scale? I mean, obviously, this is terrible for Sudan and the citizens of that country. But what kind of geopolitical consequences are we looking at here? I mean, just to reiterate what you said, it's this further destabilizes Sudan. That's a travesty for the citizens there. Uh, anytime in any of this, it is the people who get the, you the know. Com- the common people. Who it's get the common the people. Shaft. They get the shaft. They really do. Uh, but talking on a global scale, one of the main resources coveted by uh, external actors like the U.S., Russia, China, uh, is Sudan's strategic location on the Red Sea. That provides access to important trades ra- trade routes in the area. Now, Russia and the United Arab Emirates have gained control over the ports. Those ports uh, have gold-rich subsoil. And that has largely been held by Daglo's paramilitary rapid support forces. I, I can say that Daglo's made himself indispensable to many capitals like Moscow, um, Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Uh, he's also receiving technical training from Italy to fight illegal information, uh, immigration, <laughs> illegal information too, maybe. Yeah. Um, and so... This could all be seen as a further attempt to kind of court foreign support into Sudan and for that general to lead Sudan. Now, Barhan, as mentioned earlier, he's got close ties to Egypt, shares that border with Sudan. Um, And Egypt has sent its own soldiers to fight in Sudan. Uh, I think it was last time I checked, it was about 30 Egyptian soldiers who were actually, um, you know, arrested by the... uh, the paramilitary forces. And so with what Egypt is doing, Cairo is already experiencing ramifications of the fighting in Sudan. Uh, Ramifications? Ramifications. I am just (laughs) rambling in this episode, but... (laughs) Stumbling all over. You know how we mentioned we were exhausted earlier? Here it it is on full display (laughs) for your ear pleasures. (laughs) So your listening Egypt, pleasure. Egypt is experiencing the ramifications of the fighting in Sudan. Like we talked about, those soldiers were captured by the RSF. Um, so there's a lot to pl- there's a lot at play in this country. Um, and I will say, we talk about this kind of stuff, and it may feel to some like a world away, but it can affect us no matter how far away we are. Well, I hope that 
there can be a peaceful resolution that benefits the people of Sudan, but our world is a flaming dumpster fire right now. So let's move to another flaming dumpster fire, (laughs) North Korea, and talk about what is- the UN. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I was going to get there, but you, you beat me to it. So what is happening to that other flaming dumpster fire, the UN, as they discuss the current missile activities by Kim Jong-un? Yeah, there. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So the UN Security Council held a meeting after North Korea launched its 14th ballistic missile of the year. Uh, with that, let's say it's April. They've uh-huh. already launched their fourth, 14th missile, ballistic missile. The the end result of that UN Security Council meeting was a big nothing burger. And that's because a bunch of blame game playing out between the US, Russia, and China. Your typical parties that are yelling at each other. I bet those starving people in North Korea would love a burger right now. Yeah. But instead the- they're pay all their money is paying for Kim Jong un's dick measuring contest yeah all the missiles yeah like, it's okay it's a tragedy sorry for, the, sorry for that crass terminology but i mean this is just it needed to be said so so absurd okay sorry definitely um now the u.s ambassador to the u.n i want to talk a little bit about uh kind of the back and forth at the u.n security council u.s ambassador to the u.n urged russia and china to take the council out of its continued cycle of inaction. Uh, The Russian ambassador accused the U.S. of being one of the quote-unquote direct participants in the escalation of tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Um, Now, the the U.N. Security Council has failed to issue any sanctions against North Korea since May last year. Uh, So that's May of 2022 due to opposition from China and Russia. I think North Korea was always going to go down this road. They just get to blame it on us. Yeah. You know, like everybody else. But I'm sure we've discussed this before on the podcast, but can you remind me why China and Russia are on the UN Security Council? (laughs) Yeah, so they're both actually permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, and that's due to their status as both a major world power and their contributions to the Allied powers in World War II. So the UN Security Council was established after World War II to maintain international peace and security. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it hasn't done well. Uh, so yeah, as shown I mean, by it, this it, podcast it, it, every week. Well, I'm sure you know it did its job immediately after World War II, but now now look at where we're at. Yeah, another outdated. Yep. <laughs> yep. Another outdated. Um, institution that we yeah, should yeah there you go now another outdated institution for sure yeah um so the un's composed of 15 members but five of those are permanent members and each permanent member has veto power for any resolution those five permanent members two of which include china and russia now everybody might be thinking again like you asked why are they on the Security Council still. Um, they are permanent members of the Security Council because the Allied powers, after World War II, based it on, first of all, they were a major military 
especially Russia at the time, but right. also a major economic power. Um, since then, there have been discussions about the need to reform the Security Council to reflect changes in the global balance of power. But then again, those changes to the composition of the Security Council are going to require the approval of, first of all, two-thirds of the General Assembly. You could probably get that if you're uh, talking about either China or Russia. But it also right. has to have the approval of all five permanent members. So hmm. good luck getting them off the council. That's a that's a sticking point there, I see. Yeah. Would their involvement in a global conflict against the other permanent members change that permanent status? Because it's almost like they created this, and it's like the leaders of the countries at the time didn't think that, you know, from generation to generation, like, the political atmosphere changes definitely thing and, like because right now obviously china and russia do not like any of the remaining three powers that definitely. are on the security council so they're off and they're they're kind of separating everything it's kind of like our government right now nothing's getting done yeah because of the, nobody, the people in power yeah well you know nobody they can't get like the full amount of votes like it took forever for kevin mccarthy to be voted a speaker yeah. because everybody was like no i want this i want this instead no, 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 no. And that We're was my imitation same... yeah you did <laughs> an excellent imitation, imitation of... of every single person in congress <laughs> um and and they're doing that with the debt the debt ceiling right now in the u.s everybody's just because we have nothing else that we need to be wor focused on right now. Right. But uh, getting back to your question. Sorry. If, <laughs> if there was a global conflict like we've been talking about and uh, and it's against, you know, with China and Russia against the other three permanent members, is it, you know, is that, that going to change it? And I think if it plays out like analysts believe it will uh -huh. uh, with China and Russia aligning against the West. Right. There's going to. It'll ha there'll have to be a shakeup at the UN Security Council. Um, so much like the world changed leading up to and then after World War II, there's going to be another global shakeup if these one-off conflicts turn into World War III. What that looks like will obviously depend on who wins that possible conflict. Uh, and this is why I really think it's important to focus on these events. Um, I know so many of us, even you and I, are tired of the conflict, we want peace. Got to yeah. have it. I, I yeah. certainly want that. Um, but Western nations, including the United States, need to prepare for the conflict. I'm not just talking about the military. Every citizen needs to understand a global war is going to change our entire way of life. It just really sucks that peace looks different to every individual. Like, yeah. There's never going to be a consensus on what that would look like. All right, so let's discuss how to prevent a future global conflict. You're not going to like this answer. <sighs> so I think we're beyond that. Okay. Russia invaded Ukraine. That was really the start of it. Um, if that would have been prevented, if the Western nations had come together to try to prevent Russia from doing that instead of capitulating to Putin... Uh -huh. then maybe we could discuss ways to deter China. But right now, China sees an opportunity with Taiwan. Make no mistake, they are enjoying this infighting that the Western nations are participating in. Of course. Yeah, I know this, not because I believe it to be true, but because 
China and Russia are using troll farms and PSYOP campaigns to fuel pockets of dissent in the United States, the UK, France, Germany, all Western European and, and you know, North American countries. Okay, well, we kind of went down a rabbit hole. So yeah. let's get back to the North Korea dis- ugh, discussion. Now, here I am <laughs> stumbling over my words. You've rubbed up, rubbed up, rubbed <laughs> off on me. Jeez. Okay. What are some ah, of the implications of this failure to sanction Kim Jong-un in North Korea? Because he's another one that we've everybody's been capitulating to. He hasn't been punished for any of the stuff he's done. He didn't give exactly. a Exactly. And I do appreciate you getting us back on topic because I had honestly forgotten what we were talking about, <laughs> trying <laughs> to make my points here. Uh, but according to most analysts, North Korea is making significant progress in its five-year military development plan. Uh-huh. Um, that includes the recent launch of a solid fuel intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, these developments are actually pose a direct threat to countries in the immediate region, but also the missiles are capable of reaching most points on Earth. There are some points in the U.S. it can reach. So there's actually real fear within the Indo-Pacific and outside. So the failure to impose sanctions on North Korea also means that Revenue continues to flow to its weapons of mass destruction programs. Uh, This also includes its malicious cyber activities and their overseas IT workers, which they have as well. Um, It's honestly, it's just destabilizing international peace and security. And they're not just, you know, build, I mean, launching ICBMs, but didn't they also say that they (laughs) created a radioactive tsunami and now they announced that they completed building a spy satellite? Didn't they announce that today? Yes, uh, we have, we we talked about that on the Instagram page today, their spy satellite that they put into space. Um, Yeah, it's very concerning. So... There will probably be no sanctions placed by the UN Security Council, though, right? Yeah, so that's that's been blocked by China and Russia since 2006, actually. Hmm, so it's almost like this Security Council thing has backfired a long time ago, but no one's done anything about it. Yep. Okay, well, let's move on over to South America and discuss what things aren't working over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, What? Well, let's discuss Brazil and where that country currently stands on the current conflict in Ukraine, we can actually start with the background and how um, Brazil has treated this conflict from the very beginning. Yeah, so that's actually a really good place to start. Uh, So Brazil's president has suggested from the beginning that the West has actually been encouraging war by arming Ukraine. Um, He called for Western powers to stop providing arms for the war and has also urged a group of countries not involved in the conflict to engage Russia and Ukraine in peace talks. Well, encouraging, like, I like how they always say that we're encouraging war by arming people who never wanted to have this conflict to be like, we're giving them the, the ability to defend themselves that right. they wouldn't have had. They didn't want this conflict to begin with. They wanted to be over just as much as everybody else. That is, that's, that wording just, I hate it. Anyways, um, let's say that Brazil and China are successful in negotiating peace between Russia and Ukraine. And that is a huge if because we have definitely discussed both countries 
non-starters in this peace deal. And right. those non-starters are going to be difficult for the other country to agree to. Correct. Uh, let's just let's just say that they decided to, you know, capitulate to each other's demands. How does that change the geopolitical arena? All right, good hypothetical. Uh, the answer to that is it drastically changes the geopolitical landscape. So if a country like China, which the West sees as an adversary, were to broker a peace deal that both countries, Russia and Ukraine, accept, that is going to solidify China as the new superpower. Just by facilitating that one deal? Well, to quote Joe Biden, when he was vice president, it's right. a pretty big freaking deal. That was a pretty good impersonation, <laughs> yeah, honestly. Well, you saying you couldn't understand what I was saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, but uh, I say that because that's going to mean that both countries, Ukraine and Russia, would have to concede, like you said, some of those non-starters. Um, now, let, let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say China strong arms Ukraine into agreeing to a deal that's very much slanted towards Russia. That would be because the war would be shifting in favor of Russia. That actually would be a concern globally. If that were the case, it could paint China in an even more negative light in the West. Uh, you may see someone like Macron in France backpedal a bit on his support of China. So like, this entire game of geopolitics that these leaders are playing, it's very fluid. And, um, you know, we can... As we've shown through this podcast, we can kind of predict certain aspects of how it's going to play out, but we really won't know until the main power players show their hand how this is going to play out. Well, let's get back to Brazil then. Are they fully in support of Russia and China, or does the U.S. have some influence in that country's decision-making? I mean, overall, the U.S. still has a significant influence on Brazilian policies, uh, particularly in the areas of trade, energy, and economic partnerships. Um, but that influence stems from private sector leaders. Uh, so what's good about that is governmental change in the U.S. does very little to sway that influence. Um, I say that's a good thing because I'm not going to break any news here, but guess what? The U.S. political system right now is terrible. Right. You just we are fighting all the time. That's mm -hmm. got to stop. Now, the world runs on money. We all know that. Follow the money. So the ally that offers the best economic solution is going to be the one that's going to have the most influence. Right now, countries like Brazil and other Latin American countries see China as the best economic solution. And I'm going to caution those anyone in those countries against supporting that because China has a long, long history of promising big and delivering little. See, they're hoping to trap these people. Yep. So does the U.S., right? Like the U.S. also kind of promises big and delivers little sometimes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, we yeah, saw that I... with Afghanistan, right? Oh, my gosh. Don't get me started. Yeah. So like said, it has a lot to do with the current state of political discourse that I was talking about. Like I just said, the way that the U.S. left Afghanistan, that was a political decision. You had military leaders that cautioned against doing that. Right. Um, how the U.S. deals with Saudi Arabia, that is a political decision. Everything China does is an economic decision. Those decisions are made to benefit China, sometimes at the detriment of the countries they claim to support. Uh-huh. 
We talked about that with the Belt and Road Initiative. Some countries that partnered with China in that initiative are seeing a massive debt burden put on them. Huh. Uh, this, this kind of burden is going to expand to Latin American countries that continue to get involved with China. Now, this is not to say that the U.S. has the best vision for global economic partnerships. Right. They, right now, they don't. Um, I don't even know that U.S. politicians even care. Uh, they don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, it, <laughs> and it's just frustrating to have these conversations with people and everyone, like we all agree it's an issue. Uh, yeah. I know we had these conversations over the weekend and we all agreed. But those elected to solve these problems only a care, they only care about election cycles. Well, welcome to another depressing end to This Week Explained, unless you have anything else you'd like to discuss this week. Well, we should really end the podcast right here, but also I do want to say don't Start stop. your weekend <laughs> off on a high note. <laughs> I know I talked about frustrating having conversations with people and we all agreeing. Don't stop the conversation. Right. We, we don't have get to, complacent. Definitely. We have to hold leaders accountable for not doing anything. You know, the the protests that are happening and going to the steps of state capitals and trying to affect change, those are good things. Keep right. talking about these things in the public discourse. Maybe we can make a change. We're supposed to, in theory. In theory. <laughs> be able to make a change, we're supposed to. Yeah, Anyways, oh, me neither. So anyways, you're welcome, guys, <laughs> for that downer. Thank you for listening to our independent podcast. We hope you found it informative and engaging. But if you have any feedback or questions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 